Hello, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Hey, everybody, and thanks for joining me on Ideas Having Sex. My guest today is philosopher and University of Maryland professor Dan Moeller. And today we're going to talk about his book, Governing Least, A New England Libertarianism. Dan, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to be here, Chris. Can you start by giving a little bit of personal and professional background and just say how you became interested in libertarianism and maybe how you came to write this book? Sure. I've always been interested in moral and political philosophy, but I didn't always think of myself as a libertarian, as a libertarian, that's for sure. And it was a little bit a case of teaching stuff that you at first don't really think of as your ideas. You're presenting someone else's ideas. So I would teach classes between, say, Rawls, who's the storied egalitarian in political philosophy, and Robert Nozick, who's his famous libertarian antagonist. And I would start off teaching these ideas in their voice. So I would say, you know, imagine Nozick giving this argument. And then I'd keep teaching this over the years. And then eventually, you know, I just started to realize, oh my gosh, I'm talking in my own voice. So, you know, (laughs) I would issue some criticism of Rawls or something, and I would be saying it, and it was as if the quotation marks slowly started to fade away (laughs) over the years. Uh, and I realized I wasn't channeling some some other people's ideas. They were actually my ideas. So it was this kind of strange, slow dawning realization that, wait a minute, I actually believe this stuff. That was kind of how it how it happened. The other thing maybe I'll just mention, since it is connected to the book, is my my way into libertarianism, although, although there was this teaching element, a kind of thing that emotionally always resonated with me. It wasn't really the philosophers. It wasn't the usual suspects like Anne Rand or Hayek or something. It was actually figures like Thoreau and Emerson. And so the the New England in the title refers to these figures. Um, I've always loved literature. When I was an undergraduate, I co-majored in literature. I did classics. I just, I've, I've always loved literature. And so when I would sit around reading Walden, uh, when I'd read Emerson, it, it had this this strong effect on me. And so my approach to libertarianism is influenced by those figures and not some of the more usual suspects. Can you say more about the elements in their thought that feels especially libertarian? I mean, I think libertarians will be familiar with them as influences, but some others might be surprised. Yeah, uh, there's kind of a a positive and a negative aspect. So when it came to the usual suspects, you know, if you read Ayn Rand, you kind of get the feeling there's this giant clash of values. There's a sort of apocalyptic struggle between liberty and equality or something like that, or you read Hayek or or other figures who are champions of the market. And you read Nozick, who's obsessed with individual rights. And although there's, there's, there's merit in all those things, and I can see some of the attraction, those never really gripped me. But in, in especially Walden, there's this emphasis on self-reliance. And it's this kind of first person point of view. So you're not really critiquing others. You're not trying to take down socialism. You're not criticizing welfare state people as social parasites or anything, the way you sometimes get the impression in Rand. It's this kind of first person point of view. It's how should I lead my life? What kinds of ideals should I live up to? And 
the way I started to think of self-reliance was it's it's not this literal thing where you're sitting around a pond and trying to, you know, live out your weird survivalist program, at least for a year or two, or, you know, according to rumor, going home to your mom for uh, for dinner every every other weekend or something like that. It's It's this broader idea that first, you try and use reason and persuasion when you want to change things, when you want to get things done. Okay. So you're not going to use the guns of the state to try and advance your agenda. You're going to try and address yourself to your fellow citizens and use reason and persuasion. So I actually see reason and persuasion as part of the core appeal of libertarianism. It's the idea that when you want to get stuff done, you go do it. If you want to enlist others to cooperate, you use reason and persuasion. That's That should be, with, with narrow exceptions, that should be your your game plan. And then the other the other part of self-reliance that speaks to me in those in those New England writers is this reluctance to shift burdens. So I think of burden shifting as this very important part of the libertarian idea. Uh, under what conditions, when I fall on hard times, when things aren't going well for me, when can I shift my burdens onto other people? And the answer is, you know, rarely. Uh, that should not be something you're eager to do. And when you do do it, you get this whole host of residual obligations that come along with it. So I think of this idea that, uh, or set of ideas that you get through Thoreau and Walden, they're, they're not expressly libertarian. I don't, I don't know how Thoreau would vote if you were here nowadays, but this, this resistance, the suspicion to the state, and of course he was active, you know, in, in, in the Underground Railroad and in resistance to slavery in the war against Mexico. It was just like suspicion about the state, this uh, desire to figure out how to lead his own life, his resistance to burden shift, his emphasis on reason and persuasion as a way of getting stuff done. Uh, that, that speaks to me and, and I think gets at some of the core of libertarianism. And when you talk about burden shifting, I think you could probably distinguish between burden shifting that still involves reason and persuasion. I mean, someone might come to you and guilt trip you because they've come on hard times and tell you that you owe them help and still rely on reason and persuasion and, and guilt tripping is maybe a form of persuasion. But even, even there, I think most people would say that the burden is relatively high, that, that if you don't have an especially good reason to do that, it's presumptively a bad and kind of manipulative thing to do. You know, you wouldn't do it to just anyone. You maybe would seek out your family and close friends. And hopefully even then you would feel a little bit re uh, reluctant to do it unless you weren't so morally like like if you if you lost your money for the sixth time because you got drunk or something like that, you should feel quite reluctant to reach out to your friends and family for help. I would I would think. Yeah. And I, I think there's something interesting about the appropriate moral tenor in which you engage in this kind of endeavor. So. What should you, what should what should be the moral tenor of your request? I fall on you fall on hard times. You come to me to make an appeal. What should the tone of that be? How should that go? You know, the idea that I would issue such a request as a demand. You know, like I come up to you, and and again, forget about, like, like you're saying, forget about you know using force or enlisting the state or anything like that. It's it's just a request, but. Imagine I issue it as a demand, you know, so I've fallen on hard times. I want you to make a sacrifice to assist me or something. And I issue it as a demand, you know, how dare you not, you know, drop everything and come and help me. Um, that just seems totally wrong to me. Uh, it seems crazy. And and I think there's something valuable about seeing this through the first person lens. Uh, I think when you think about other people, you know, and you're you're thinking of the worse off and you're sort of, you know, you you maybe feel 
sometimes condescendingly, I think, you know, uh, you, you, you feel bad for the worse off and you imagine, you know, uh, the, the obligations other, others have to help this, this can sometimes obscure this. Whereas if you put it in the first person, you just ask yourself, you know, what would my tone be if I fell on hard times and wanted others to make sacrifices for me? You know, it'd be this one of sort of please, it would be this kind of request, it wouldn't have this rights based obligation tenor that you find in, you know, non libertarian approaches to this kind of subject. So I, I do think that sheds some light on this. Do you think this is a fundamental difference in the way you're justifying libertarianism or a difference of emphasis and rhetoric? I do think there's a fundamental difference in um, how you think about the role that rights play in this. So if you're talking about uh, things like what it takes to ground burden shifting and what comes with that, the way this shows up in kind of this fundamental moral philosophy question is how do you conceive the nature of individual rights and under what conditions and, and what follows when you transgress against other people's rights in order to compel them, say, to uh, participate in the state or in some welfare scheme or something like that? So I, unlike, unlike some philosophers like Nozick, I don't think that individual rights as they relate to things like property or even bodily harm, I don't think these are absolute. So I don't think these are infinitely high walls that can never be transgressed under any conditions. I think individual rights come in different shapes and sizes. I think this is a very important part of moral philosophy that's been uh, over overlooked. Not all uh, rights you have against other people are infinitely strong, but they are there. You, you don't get to ignore them. And when you do transgress them, okay, so when you do infringe on other people, uh, say because you feel that you are in some emergency and you need to assist, uh, you, you get yourself some assistance or assist other people, third parties. You have all these duties that egalitarians just ignore to repay. To uh, it'll sound silly, perhaps, but but of gratitude. Uh, these are these are not things that you're entitled to as a matter of course. Uh, and so I don't think you can see these as demands that you can issue and that are then rightly satisfied with no residual obligations on the part uh, to the people whom you're getting assistance from. Yeah. In a normal circumstance, I think probably even egalitarians and certainly non-libertarians in general would would grant a lot of what you just said when you're talking about normal um, interpersonal relations. You appeal to analogies in the book and you you have a, an analogy about you know, what if you need to break into your neighbor's house to steal a thousand dollars? What kinds of reasons could you appeal to to make that not an obviously criminal thing? And I think any normal person could come up with any number of reasons. You know, like if you need if you need the thousand dollars for some reason to that it's imminently needed to prevent your child from from dying or breaking a leg even or something like that. It's not that hard to come up with wild hypothetical reasons, but it's certainly not a good enough reason because you're poorer than you'd like to be. You really need that money to get into cosmetology school or, or or whatever, like to to improve your situation a little bit. Like the threshold is pretty high, and the 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 objection I think comes from the fact that you're using these analogies to argue against you know state provision of thousand dollars in aid or something like that. So can you say something about why you think that it's a legitimate move to argue from these kinds of analogies? I think. I've read books with these kinds of analogies. I find it very compelling. Some people really don't. But what, why is this a legitimate move? It's a good methodological question. 
So I, I would frame the issue as micro and macro. So you have these kind of micro contexts in which you can get a sense that you have a handle on the moral situation. So if I, you know, start with something crazy, like, uh, you know, how should we organize all society? It's sort of hard to, to have firmly grounded thinking about this. Whereas if I give you vignettes or micro level questions of interactions, you know, you and me and breaking into our house and so on, you have more firmly rooted moral beliefs about these cases. And so those are helpful. And so what you're trying to do is move from these micro level cases to these macro level cases. But you're right that not everyone is always persuaded by those cases and you do have to be a little bit careful about them. So just to register one sort of thing you, you do want to be careful about, if you're thinking about cases in which the state already exerts influence, then that can kind of contaminate your thinking about some of these cases. So it's it's certainly true that if you already have an existing state with existing authorities and we've sort of settled how we adjudicate our disputes, then you know, if I do that as a private citizen, you know, if I if I try and give you some vignette between you and me, and then you start thinking, well, under normal conditions, that'd be the state. And are you asking me to sort of suspend that belief? And so that can quickly become uh, confusing and difficult. So I, I agree with that. But I, I think the, the reason you do have to ultimately follow this kind of strategy is because it's these micro cases where you do have firmly rooted moral beliefs. And as the um, contract tradition in political philosophy that we associate with figures like Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau, as I think they showed, it can be useful to think about what they called the state of nature, uh, which people sometimes mistakenly imagine to be some weird historical exercise, you know, about some weird thing in the Garden of Eden or something. But, but I think it's better conceived of as just a non-state situation or a situation where the state isn't effective in exerting its authority, uh, which is, you know, that's true of actual regions in the in the world. You know, you find yourself in the jungle, you're in uh, Somalia or something like that, or just there are natural disasters and the state is unable to exert control because of some hurricane or something, 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 there's civil war and so on and so forth. And when you think about non-state situations, I don't think the right way to picture them is as some morality-free zone, all right? So if we encounter each other in the jungle or if the state's unable to exert authority temporarily in some natural disaster, civil war type situation, I don't think that means I get to kill you. I don't think that means I get to take all your stuff. I don't think it means I get to rob your fields or anything like that. So I, I do think there are fundamental reasons for giving weight to these cases where you're trying to envision moral situations um, absent or independent of the state. And I do think our, our only viable strategy here ultimately is to start with the micro and go to the macro. So there are moral facts independently of the state and thinking about micro situations is maybe clarifying in our thought, then we can kind of tease out moral principles that if they seem sufficiently strong, we ought to believe that the state is similarly bound by them, that ordinary people would be bound by them. And I think one part of your argument is what you call, and this I think this is relevant to this this part of the conversation, uh, what you call the non-emergence assumption, which you claim that the state does not possess emergent moral powers. So maybe that's a weird term. Can you say something about um, what role that assumption plays in the book and what exactly you mean by em emergent moral powers? 
Sure. It's easy to slide into emergency. And of course, that's not what we're saying here. Yeah, my autocorrect certainly wanted to slide into emergency. <laughs> Uh, the, the state certainly uh, does possess uh, emergency powers, but that's not what we have in mind. By emergent, I mean that you might think that the state has moral powers, that there are moral things the state may permissibly do that are separate from independent of what individual citizens may do. And and let me be, let me be very clear about this. What I, what I mean here is not that once we founded the state, we might transfer certain functions to the state that the state then has, and we individual citizens don't. That's that's true too, of course. So, uh, and that's you know, true the, of ordinary clubs as well. Yeah, and so the the fire department and the police possess, you know, they have authorities that I, as a private citizen, don't have, and so on. So that that's not what we're getting at here. But what I mean is, is there stuff? that we as individuals can't do. Imagine again, a non-state situation or you're you know, in the jungle or something on safari or whatever in an area where the state can't assert authority. Is there stuff that we can't do because it's immoral? For example, torturing the innocent for fun, just to take a clear example. But the state, they, because they're the state, they suddenly get to do it, even though neither I, nor you and me, nor our neighborhood block association, nor any private group of individuals could do it because it's morally forbidden. And there, I just want to say no. Morality isn't emergent in that sense, the way other things sometimes are emergent. So just to give a, a like a standard philosophy example, an individual neuron doesn't really seem to be conscious. They're eccentrics who deny this, but most people don't think one neuron is conscious. But then eventually when you assemble them in the right way and you have enough of them and they constitute a brain, well then consciousness seems to emerge. Um, I don't think morality works like that. It's not that, well, of course I can't steal all your stuff or you and I can't get together and like hold a vote. Do you and me vote to go expropriate that guy down the street? That's not how that works. We can't just do that. And then, you know, you get 25 people and they wear the right uniform and they design a really cool flag. Now it's okay. No, that's that's not how this works. So uh, we can transfer certain powers to the state eventually, but the powers that we're transferring aren't ones that are somehow magically emerge and that where they're allowed to do potentially awful, horrible things that mere groups of individuals couldn't otherwise do. That's the claim. In your view, the powers that the state eventually has are either powers that individuals have and are giving up or are powers that maybe individuals have each in very small quantity but aggregate when the state uses them you know as one as one institution or something but they're not they're not getting wholly new moral powers so maybe maybe you just answered this question but do you think the concept of emergent moral powers is even coherent? I mean, you, you're denying that it exists within the government, but do you think that any agents or groups in society possess emergent moral powers, or is it just a non-starter of a concept? Uh, I think it's a non-starter with regard to morality. So I, I don't think okay. that emergent properties is some crazy idea as the, the, the consciousness thing shows. Elias Ryukowski denies that emergence uh, is a coherent concept. I don't know if I follow oh, his argument. In but, general. Uh -huh. <laughs> in general, fully uh, generally, yeah. Okay, that would I would find that surprising in the brain case, but uh, in the moral case, I do. I would just give one more example. Uh, war is kind of interesting. People sometimes find this puzzling in the case of war, but I'm inclined to think this is true in the case of war. So as an individual, obviously, I can't fight wars on my own. 
obviously there are weird things that states do that individuals can't do. I can't build a nuclear bomb. States can build nuclear bombs and so on. But the general moral concept, um, when can I use aggression against other people? What do you have to do for that to be permissible on my part? What kinds of people can I attack? Under what conditions? Those general moral principles, I do think, are non-emergent. So they're true in the same way for me. You know, they're conditions under which I can attack and kill other people. Um, they're conditions under which the state can do the same thing. The state is, you know, descriptively different because there are more people and it's able to do more stuff. Uh, physically speaking, but I don't think morally it gets some special justification that I wouldn't get. Just to stay on this detour a little bit, since you brought up the example of war, are you familiar with or what do you think about Brian Kaplan's case for pacifism? I don't know his story about pacifism. You'll have to I think it's me. it's roughly that, like you're saying, that the state does not have emergent moral powers, but that the ordinary the ordinary permissions ordinary people might have to commit aggression in defense or whatever, create a very high threshold that would virtually prohibit all modern war as we understand it, that engaging in an activity that has a virtual certainty of killing innocent people imposes such a high moral burden that probably no wars actually satisfy that burden. Um, and I think he I think he appeals to the um, organ harvester case as a bare minimum threshold of like, can you be like virtually certain that you're going to be saving at least five lives for every one innocent life you kill and that probably no modern war satisfies that threshold. Yeah, uh, that, well, that, that takes us far afield, but that, that's his argument more or less. Right. That might take us far afield. Uh, that has a kind of utilitarian cast to it. Uh, economists are very fond of utilitarian reasoning, but I'm a bit more suspicious. <laughs> and so I'm... Uh, well, I think he was saying that even on relatively loose utilitarian grounds, it doesn't work, but that he wouldn't... I think he would have set the threshold much higher than than that. Anyway, right. anyway, sorry, I cut well, you off. Yeah, uh, this is one of those funny things where, you know, sometimes utilitarianism has this kind of scary cast where it seems to allow you to do way too much stuff. Like you can do scary things to other people if it will promote the overall good. But then there are other conditions in which relative to, say, more Kantian theories, uh, it's kind of more prohibitive. So it won't let you go to war because what are the odds that that's going to be utility positive? Hardly ever is it oh, for I the see greater good. But a kind of more, you know, rights-based understanding, a more Kantian understanding might be there are things you can do that make you liable to aggression. And even if it's not for the greater good, you made yourself liable to aggression in virtue of what you did. And so there can be this weird way in which the Kantian might end up being more, so to speak, aggressive in certain contexts. So in the case of war, if you did something provocative or tried to take land that wasn't yours, it might allow for aggression. So who knows? Yeah. I think that that sounds completely right to me. If I if I do something, to me the relevant question seems like what liability then do people who happen to live a mile away from me have based on my actions? Um right. and if you don't grant that citizens of one country are morally responsible for the aggression of the leadership class or something, then that's a little bit trickier. Let's get back to your book. Let me say one more word, if you don't mind. Just I don't this, at all. Just on this issue of um, emergence and collectives. One aspect of this that I think really is important is that it's so easy to overlook the moral powers that the state is exercising once everyone's wearing official uniforms and waving the flag around. And you very quickly stop thinking about it as 
requiring moral justification, just as if your your neighbors were. Of, of course, once there is a state, you know, there there's this division of labor between you know functions you've transferred to certain government organizations and so on. But the powers they're they're exercising are, in my view, just the same as the ones that your neighbors would. And so, I really do think it's important, and and I do think this is an important feature of what. Uh, makes libertarianism seem compelling if you do find it once you do find it compelling you know you're you're ultimately asking look under what conditions could i go to my neighbors and insist that they do certain things or transfer their money in certain ways or assist certain people or engage in certain you know cooperative schemes or something and once you start accepting that this is the the, the essential moral situation um, whether the people doing it have fancy uniforms and wave their flag around, or it's just, you know, Bob across the way, uh, you know, that threshold starts to look really high. I mean, is that a threshold you could ever meet? I, I think so, but it's a really high threshold. Under what conditions would I show up to my neighbors and start issuing orders and demands? And if they didn't do it, use violence against them, which is what the state does. You know, that's a super high threshold. And I, I think a lot of the argument just goes astray once pe when people forget to apply the same standard to the state, to the government they would apply in just everyday life. And is your substantive answer to that question, as I'm recalling, essentially twofold? One, the threshold is met when it's an imminent life or limb situation, potentially. Or two, if it's an extremely important good or service that also has potentially insuperable free rider problems. That's more or less it. Uh, on the question of, you know, when do you meet the threshold and so on, you know, because it's such hard work just to get people to take <laughs> the general setup here seriously, I don't try and, you know, like figure out what that line should be. But that seems like a rough and ready way of thinking about it. And importantly, I do think that even when the stakes are super high like that, you, you don't somehow waive your duty to repay uh, either. So even when you do get a permission to infringe on your neighbors, you know, and in sort of everyday cases, you know, when could I steal your car for an emergency or something? You know, there are cases where I think I could do that, right? Like my or my kids going into shock and, you know, there's a shot in your house and I could break in or, you know, they're like cases where it seems right. But my gosh, I then have all these duties of repayment, redress, gratitude, and so on. It's not like the emergence of the uh, of the conditions that allow me to do this mean I can somehow shift my burden onto you permanently. Like you're now stuck with my misfortune. That That's not how that works. And you give these reasons and you come out essentially arguing for a libertarian minimal state. You're not an anarchist, but you're arguing for a minimal state that's doing a relatively limited set of things. Is your view then that even with these things, the state incurs all these residual obligations. And if so, like, how does what does that look like for the state providing, say, national security? What do the residual obligations that the state incurs to its citizens look like in regards to the essential services that you are supporting? Well, I would draw a distinction between what are ultimately transfer functions of the state. So most welfare functions of the state have a transfer quality. And so those are the ones where most naturally you would think of them as incurring these, these residual obligations where um, you can imagine a, a case for saying the threshold is, is met when the state has to uh, address you know, these uh, emergency threats to life and limb, but then you're on the hook, presumably, and you know, you'd handle this through the tax system or something um, to, uh, to repay, to uh, redress, 
Uh, and I keep adding the gratitude thing. Obviously, it's not that you'd write some weird law about you have to, you know, like go thank your neighbors or something like that. But but that would be the spirit of the law. That the the spirit of the law is not, you know, this is some something you have some you know right to. It's something that uh, you should be, uh, you know, you should have this attitude that you're ultimately re- repaying because it's you know it's a duty to repay and it's it's a kind of duty of gratitude. Well, and you even say like you, it may be that you do have a right to something and still owe gratitude. You, you mm-hmm, would give mm-hmm. an example of you meet a friend for lunch and an important business call comes up and you have to leave and leave your friend in the lurch. Yes, you have a right to do that, but it would be unseemly of you to not show that you're sorry, that you're sad for having put your friend out. Yes, it's your right to do that, but it would be a, a shitty thing to do to just leave and be like, well, tough luck. I have a right to leave. It's an important work call. Yeah, yeah. So even when you're entitled to these kinds of goods, um, having this attitude that that's just completely gets completely confused once you you you're used to a system in which you know you you view it as something that is a matter of course uh, all these things should come to you uh then yeah of, of course you're going to start losing that kind of that kind of attitude which I, I think makes a big difference uh, do you see your fellow citizens ultimately as you know like resources you can draw on and that's kind of what they're there for or do you not? Do you have more of this kind of modest, you know, Thoreauvian attitude? If you look at your fellow citizens and you just think, you know, gosh, under what conditions could I appeal to them, let alone, you know, just sort of without even asking, like, grab hold of their resources, you know, that should be something that's like at the bottom of your list when you've exhausted all other options. And my gosh, and you know, you should, you should like fear and trembling <laughs> should accompany that kind of thing. Now, what about for non, you, you just, you drew a distinction between transferring, you know, transfers and other kinds of services or not even services, but take the example of like the provision of police and and courts, a traditional view uh, that I'm going to kind of assume that you agree with and tell me if you don't of a, you know, classical liberal libertarian minimal state is that they're going to provide police services and courts and dispute resolution, etc. They're not just providing these services, but they're also going to enforce something like a monopoly. So they are going to prohibit citizens for the most part to provide competing courts and police or something like that. So that's a form of doing something that would normally be infringing on someone's rights to tell you you can't start a business, a lawful business or, or whatever. You can't start a security provision or service. So to, to what extent, on account of that, does the state owe obligations, restitution, compensation, sympathy, you know, the residual obligations, if at all, to the citizens? Yeah, so maybe there's two points there. So one is that it's it's not really a, tr- a a transfer function because that kind of thing public safety is a public good for the most part and um people since adam smith have emphasized public goods as things that it generally makes sense for the state to provision um they more or less benefit everyone. And it's at least very difficult to deny these services to anyone. So it's difficult to exclude people from these kinds of services. If I want to provide national security against you know foreign adversaries, it's very hard to do that selectively or anything like that. You can't set up a private firm that selectively uh, endows people with that good and, and, and others not. And, and so to the extent everyone benefits, uh, it doesn't have this transfer quality, so it doesn't really make that much sense to invoke this point about uh, redress and, and gratitude and all of that. You make this uh, subtler point, though. There's the subtler question of 
um, forget about whether you're benefiting and you know selectively paying in and, and drawing out. There's also this question of, well, I, I suppose a, the average person isn't likely to to worry about this, but the anarchist might show up here and say, you know, <laughs> why do you get to impose, you know, your version of the police, you know, with your laws and your your courts? I want to have my own private trial in my basement. And I think here, once you start pondering, you know, how excited you are about everyone having private trials in their basements, you can see that there's pretty good reason to accede to a, a, a single monopolistic system that we can exercise authority over. We're not going to want to agree to, you know, random neighbors holding trials in their basements in front of a shotgun or something. And so I, I think it's reasonable for people to exclude others from kind of eccentric private law enforcement along those lines. And what you owe people in turn, of course, is a fair system. So that's what you get in, in turn. And you can, you know, decide that politically if you want different laws and so on. But I, I think people have good cause not to accede to, you know, uh, shotgun justice in the basement of their neighbors. I agree with that. Framing it as shotgun justice in the basement is maybe <laughs> slanting the the argument a little bit. But do you think that at least that point, because I'll concede that point like abstractly, do you think that that point at least depends on the empirical, how the empirical social science shakes out as to what might be a plausible and effective dispute resolution system? Like if it turned out that making, say, private arbitration and mediation, not shotgun basement things, but like firms with reputations and things like that, and private security forces and making the kind of anarcho-capitalist point that if it turn that if it did turn out that those institutions and mechanisms were not even better than governments, but plausibly close to them, does that shift the argument? To some extent, I don't think it matters because uh, for it to be reasonable for me to accept this kind of system, it's going to end up being state-like is my view. So if we end up calling it the law enforcement company and they cover everyone and they have a single system of justice and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. My view is, you know, Nozick uses this phrase at the beginning of his book, Anarchy, State, Utopia, uh, how to back into a state without trying. And that's my sense of what's going to happen very quickly. So I'm not going to want to belong to the law enforcement company or the dispute adjudication company that has five clients. That sounds like a loser. I want to join the one that has 20 million clients and can impose its will and can definitely, definitely make sure that I'm, you know, my rights are, are vindicated and so on. And so it's the sort of thing it's very hard to imagine won't, you know, show, <laughs> shall we say, high returns to scale and will very, very quickly, I think, turn into monopolies. And, you know, those monopolies will then just end up being states or you'll think of them as states and they'll end up be overlapping with other kinds of, you know, public good provisions of services. And so whether we end up calling those things private or or the state doesn't really even matter. But uh, the, so, so the important thing is, I think you have good reason to insist with violence if necessary, that your disputes are adjudicated in a fair way and that they're not you're not subject to arbitrary enforcement at the hands of your random neighbors and so whether that then gives you ultimately the the right to call upon a company that's very large and probably will be monopolistic or something we just end up calling the state uh, either way no i see that i think what you call it aside i think the spirit of my question was wondering if this is a conceptual uh moral claim or 
a claim about what what shape of what institutions are likely to provide fair adjudication and fair security or something like that. I take it for granted that you're predicting either something more like a traditional state or Nozick. I mean, Nozick is making like an empirical prediction about what would happen in, in anarchy that that the private security firms and dispute resolution firms would tend to be monopolistic. There would be huge economies of scale. And, you know, increasingly, as a result, people would be entitled to insist on certain things from the only remaining provider that's providing a very important service. Right. Maybe um, one way of putting it is this. I think almost everyone's going to agree that this is true in the national security context. So if I imagine like, OK, the private nuclear deterrent arsenal company and, uh, you know, and like there's the public good aspect and the monopolistic thing, it starts to just sound kind of too hard to work out how that's going to work privately in a way that isn't getting into the state without meaning to. And so then maybe it's slightly more of an open question, the more you kind of descend the rungs into sort of, you know, mild mannered disputes. Uh, we have actual dispute resolution private companies and you can hire them. And and so, you know, uh, as you move somewhere between, you know, resolving your disputes about the microwave with your, with your neighbor uh, up to, you know, nuclear deterrence, somewhere there, it starts to sound silly. And I guess reasonable people might disagree a little bit about where there you're going to turn into something that sounds like the state. Okay. So speaking of nuclear deterrence and national defense, in having a minimal state, the the risk of significant numbers of free riders, you know, making it difficult and imposing costs on people who are trying to provide for themselves very important services like national defense. I you know provide a strong national defense against, say, realistic foreign threats. And it's easy for anyone to say, well, I don't really want that and I'm not going to pay into it and I didn't ask for it. And they get all the benefits of this obviously important thing that they're benefiting from. And so that's a good reason to be able to force people to pay. Uh, my question, or I guess I have two questions. One, national defense fire service seems like a like a good case of that. Why do you think that like ordinary policing or roads and, and infrastructure fit the bill for free riding? Those seem like maybe cases where it, it's not obvious to me why it would be impossible to exclude free riders from the provision of smaller, you know, ordinary policing or roads or something like that. Yeah, so this is, uh, you alluded to some of this being ultimately an empirical question, and I, I'm willing to allow that, uh, you know, I, I don't, I can't say I have great confidence about exactly where to draw these lines. You can also, you can also imagine, you know, level of technology make, makes a big difference, right? So yeah, yeah, it's becoming easier and easier, right, to track where everyone is and utilization of various services and so on. So I, I fully accept that uh, tech could actually redraw the lines of what counts as a public good. Uh, you know, a public good, one component, again, is this question of whether you can exclude people easily or not. And tech might make it easier. You know, there's there's like the scary part of tech where it's, you know, omnipresent and, you know, they're always watching you and so on. But another face of that is that it's easier to track what you're, what resources you're consuming and what you're doing. And so what counts as a public good, interestingly, could change. So it's it's hard to imagine, you know, like the clean air changing too much, you know, uh, seems not easily foreseeable that that would be uh, excludable, but roads maybe, maybe more so. So I, I, I accept that. Yeah. So in general, you know, what you're, what you're asking yourself is what are the kinds of things that you can compel people to contribute to because you have some overwhelmingly strong reason to engage in the activity, like defend yourself, 
and they would have strong reasons to try and free ride if you didn't find some way to forbid that by 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 charging them and so i i think somewhere in the in the region of of, of roads that's going to kind of peter out into something something kind of hard to measure or empirical or technological uh i'm not sure something like the police though you know public safety strikes me as more like clean air and, and again remember it's easy when you're thinking of the police to think of this like a particular occasion like you call the police to come save me from this guy but of course the right way to think about about it is in terms of public safety right like deterrence the fact that everyone knows that there's some service around that will ensure order and so on and so forth so i think if you view it more like public safety, then it sounds a bit more like clean air and something that it's not easy to imagine, you know, than practical realm of, of, of excluding some people from the service. So that's, yeah. Hey, everyone, this is Chris Kaufman. And I just want to let you know that each one of you are super special, precious snowflakes that I appreciate to bits for listening to my show. I love doing this show so much, but it is still a small show. And if you want to help me out a little bit, I would greatly appreciate it. If you would just recommend the show to a friend, maybe two friends, um, but every little bit counts, especially when you are a small, new and growing show as I am. So if you want to help me out, that is the simplest thing you can do. And I will not bug you any longer right now. Back to the show. Does your view of libertarianism and the way you're thinking about this have any have anything to say about relative levels of decentralization? you know, lo local versus provincial versus national world government? Uh, that's interesting. No, I have nothing <laughs> deep to say about that at all. But but uh, instead, let me say something. Uh, let me say something related to this that's in the neighborhood that I think our, our anarcho-capitalist friends or, or just straight anarchist friends tend to get wrong here. A, lo a lot of our conversation here has, has revolved around, you know, services you need, but there's also interventions against third, third parties. Um, so, you know, like if I see my neighbors beating their kids or something, that's that's something I do think I have a moral right to intervene against. And I think groups of us have rights to establish, you know, organizations to intervene. I, I do think of that as a, a function of the state. So just to get that in there quickly, the, the, the part of the reason I'm against anarchism is because I think you, you can think of these instances where anti-free rider type provisions give you a right to insist others contribute. But there are also intervention type cases against third parties. There's also just plain regulation. I think a certain amount of regulation makes sense. So should my neighbor be able to build a nuclear reactor in their backyard? No, I have a right to insist that they, if they do so, they do so within the context of some, you know, safety scheme, et cetera, et cetera. And so those are all cases where I think it's reasonable for us to intervene against our neighbors and, and to form some organization to do it, though to your question of, you know, what level should that, uh, should that be? I, I don't have deep thoughts about that. It probably depends on the specific issue. Like, I I mean, mm -hmm. you know, defense against foreign threats seems like might lend itself more towards slight more centralization. Local policing as a way of providing for public safety. I don't know that could I could imagine that being get, getting plenty out of it if, if different localities were all providing for themselves. Yeah, certainly devolved governance is in the spirit of libertarianism. And so no, no libertarian is going to be unfriendly to uh, narrow scoping these kinds of things. Can you say something about the threshold view of rights? You know, I really like that way of framing it. Sorry. Sure. It's this funny thing where when people started talking about rights, which, you know, 
uh, just to give a, a, a boring professorial uh, <laughs> framing for a second, you know, pe people think of this as, as just part of the moral universe, but but it's it's not. So if you read Plato and Aristotle, there's there's very little in there that corresponds to our talk of rights. There are norms, there's lots of talk of justice, but there's not really much talk of rights. And so our, our notions here really don't go back that far. They go back mostly to the you know European Enlightenment and, and following. And when you look at the rights that people there are speaking of, they tend to be these epic rights. Okay, so they're rights to, to life and liberty and property and stuff like that. And so you get used to thinking of rights in those terms. But of course, there are other things that you have an obligation to do or not do to me, and I have a right against you that you observe your, your corresponding duties that are just small. So, right, I have a right against you that you don't pinch me. Uh, you can't pull out a single strand of my hair without me asking you to, right? That would literally, you know, there'd be assault and battery and it you know, wouldn't be a huge charge, but you can't touch my body in certain ways, but those are trivial, right? And the idea that those are absolute is just crazy, right? It's just crazy. There are all kinds of sufficient reasons for which I can pinch you or nudge you or push you out of the way in order to promote some other good or something like that, right? There's a standing reason for me not to do it. I should apologize and so on, but it's not like I have some grandiose absolute right against you or not pinching me or something like that. So for that reason, I think it's better to think of rights as you know, metaphorically speaking, they're thresholds. They're not infinitely high walls that you can never climb over. They're thresholds. Uh, and this contrasts with the utilitarian idea that there's no threshold there at all, that as long as you're promoting the overall good, you can kind of do whatever you want to people. That's famously something frightening and alarming about utilitarianism. So on, on this view, there are these thresholds. If I want to pinch you or take your money or take your property, that's something that there are circumstances in which that is something that might be permitted, but I got to pass this threshold that's, of course, going to get higher and higher the more your interests are implicated. And correspondingly, then, there are these retrospective duties that I might incur, for example, to, as we've noted, to repay and redress and prospectively exhaust my options to avoid doing it and so on and so forth. But, but it is possible. So the goal here is to try and capture the idea of the rights theorists that utilitarianism is missing something i can't just you know if it would if i would get more out of your car than you would i can't just take your car and announce but it would promote the overall good or it's utility positive that's crazy um there's this high threshold i would need to clear maybe it's something like my kid's going into shock and needs to go to the hospital and you're not there and you left the keys in but I do have to clear the threshold, and there are all these other residual duties that accompany it. So you're, you're trying to capture both what the rights theorist wants to say and the grain of truth in utilitarianism, you know, where some student, when you introduce the notion of rights, always wants to say, uh, but what if there's like a nuclear holocaust at stake or something? Or what if it's the ticking time bomb? And then you kind of feel this need to climb back down. Yeah, I think it really, I, I really liked the way you framed that. I think it captures a lot of normal moral intuitions that people have that just what you said there there are things which you can't just do because it would be ne a net improvement um but that doesn't mean that it would be literally impossible for you to do this thing without violating some moral prohibition and that's a perfect example also the list of kind of residual obligations that you incur is also very in line i think with normal moral intuition say you do have to steal my car what do you owe me 
maybe not right away. Maybe I should like make sure your kid's okay at the hospital first or something like that. But when the dust is settled, maybe a thank you note or an apology note, maybe fill the car up with gas. You know, it doesn't have to be cut and dry. But also, and this is one I want to ask you about. I really like this one. One of the residual obligations that you list in your non-exhaustive list is the future-oriented one that you have a general standing responsibility to, you know, arrange your life such that you're not likely to be in these circumstances or to at least minimize the chance. I mean, this is maybe a reason why maybe people have standing moral obligations not to become drug addicts. It's a very reliable way to put yourself constantly in emergency situations in which your life or limb might be on the line if you don't break into someone's car and sleep in it or something like that. Yeah, it speaks to something deep about how you view your fellow citizens again. Do do you view your fellow citizens as a kind of resource that you can draw on uh, where you think you're entitled in some way to to draw on them and to make use of them to benefit you? Uh, Or do you have more respect for your fellow citizens and just have a kind of awe of them uh, in their in awe of their moral powers? Um, And this too is something I think you see in Thoreau, this the sense that you view your fellow citizens as having this moral authority that you need to respect. And are there occasions where you would try and enlist them in your endeavors or get them to cooperate with you in your projects? Sure, of course, that's that's great. But you know, you, you would have this kind of respect and sometimes a kind of moral awe where you would approach them in this very special way. And you would, you know, my gosh, you would never dream of getting up and thinking. I don't need to show up to work today because I can draw on these other people. And if anything bad happens to me, gosh, they'll always be there to, um, you know, for me to insist that they that that they help me out. Uh, you know, if, if you have an option to avoid that, you try and avoid that option. So libertarianism is not the most in vogue political philosophy in, in academia. And you wrote this book and you also did. And you mentioned that, like, you specifically went out of your way to focus on, um, you know, arguments questioning the welfare state and transfer payments. And this is not like the fun, sexy part of libertarianism that (laughs) even people who disagree with see the force behind, like you probably would get a better reaction, I'm guessing, from your colleagues for for arguing for things like, you know, the abolition of vice crime laws, drug legalization, even free speech, which maybe has a mixed reputation right now. But what do you feel like was the reaction of, you know, other philosophers or your colleagues and people in academia to to this book who were not already, you know, in the libertarian tradition? No, they're hostile. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, philosophy is kind of a pugnacious field. So uh, I wouldn't wouldn't make too much of it. You know, when I've gone around speaking uh, to people about it, there was a memorable memorable occasion when I went to uh, the Princeton Center for Human Values and uh, (laughs) pitched them the book and the they're not super, super excited about it. And you're right that um, if you're smart, if you're if you're trying to enlist at least, or or to to switch to thinking about my own undergraduates, uh, if you're if you're smart, you start with you know the the happy fun parts about I don't know drug legalization or something is something that you can get people <laughs> excited about. Whereas I do focus on the parts that are a harder sell. But what I do like to think I've done is at least get people to stop attacking a straw man. So so what bothers me is they tend to think of libertarianism as this thing that's based on some absolutist conception of individual rights or some obsession with economics to the exclusion of moral philosophy. And so then there's this tendency of the the lazy dismissal, because you just think, well, it's all based on this moral premise that I can easily laugh at. And so what I what I like to think I've done at least is raise the challenge that 
the premises of libertarianism are, are not super, super strong. This is, this is not an idea that rests on assumptions that hardly anyone shares. It's not like, for example, you know, premise one, adopt utilitarianism or premise <laughs> one, accept that individual rights to property and money are infinitely powerful. And then I show you that my political philosophy follows, you know, you roll your eyes and you just think those are such strong assumptions. I can get out of this right away. And so uh, what I'm really trying to do in the book is to convince you that libertarianism, maybe you'll reject it in the end, but it rests on assumptions that are harder to dismiss than you might think. It rests on moral assumptions that there are such things as thresholds that your fellow citizens you know, that there are these thresholds that you do cross when you try and utilize your fellow citizens for things like transfer payments. And you should rethink those and you should rethink how you view your fellow citizens. And speaking of premises around property rights, I really enjoyed your take on property rights. You kind of contra maybe a simplified lock-in view. Don't take there to be like one simple single action you can take to definitively, you know, establish full property rights. Can you say something about your view of how property rights are justified and established and maybe adjudicated? This is another area where I think people have made things too easy for themselves. So the 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 hoary tradition in philosophy is to mumble something about Locke. If you're if you're a pro, you you say the Lockean proviso because there's a famous Lockean proviso, and then you you <laughs> you kind of stop there. And and Locke's way of thinking about property, unsurprisingly, is it's all about actual agriculture and then the labor you do around agriculture. And so this is known as the labor theory of property. And this is the only, you'd be amazed, but this is the only theory that philosophers have. So if you just go read what people say about the morality of property, it's all about lock and labor and land and weird stuff like that, which is of course bizarre. Uh, we live in a country where it's you know 70% a service economy, very little in value as a function of laboring on the fields. And so what I try and do there is extend Locke's theory. I, I agree with Locke's idea that there are um, moral rights to property and that these aren't conventional. They're not just invented by the state. But I, I don't think you should think of this as ultimately revolving around labor. I think there's a long list of moral stuff you can do to improve your claim to control some asset relative to other people who might show up to contest it. So labor is one thing that comes to mind. And I think the way you should view Locke here ultimately is he, he stumbled on a special case. So if I've worked really, really, really hard on my fields and you show up from out of nowhere and are like, gimme, well, you can see Locke's point that, but I worked so hard and I've been laboring is gonna be an important part of your story as to why you, know, you are entitled and I'm not. But the question then is, is that literally the only thing that you could say to improve your argument that you have a claim to control this asset relative to other people? I don't think so. I think there's some long, probably open-ended list of things. Getting there first can, I think, sometimes give you at least a weak moral claim. Uh, invention and creation, I think, are hugely important moral claims that you can enlist. The so-called proviso, I think you should read as just another thing on this moral list. So the proviso says in, in Locke that there's as enough that there's enough land and as good left over for other people. And I think again, you should just think of all of this, you know, imagine yourself in a conversation with another claimant. They show up and say, gimme, what's the stuff that you would put on the table to resolve this in your favor? And so Locke's right that labor is one thing. Locke's also right that another thing you might just throw on the table there is 
hey, wait a minute, guy, there's there's another patch of land right over there. You could go do it yourself. It's not like I have the only land in town here and you're going to starve, right? So that's one more thing you'd throw in the hopper, but it's a long list, right? Again, creation, originality, discovery, uh, you know, uh, priority. There are all these things that we that we issue, and I think of those as all contributing to your moral defense of controlling an asset. Were you inspired by any particular authors or works on what came to be your view on justifying property rights? Not so much. There's a lot of economic history that I enjoy and try and sprinkle into the book. So that has sometimes had a had an influence on me. Those aren't really moral defenses, but they're more stories of how value has come to be created and you know how we went from being an agricultural society to being being prosperous. Um, so these are people like Greg Gregory Clark or like Farewell to Alms. Economic history has been kind of the biggest influence when it comes to property, I guess. Fernand Brodel wrote this long Marxist book. <laughs> I forget what the uh, what the original title is, but the the three volume history of capitalism that Brodel wrote. And although it's Marxist, it's this incredibly <laughs> beautiful descriptive history. And he's such a rich author, and he takes you through you know like seventeenth century paintings and the objects you can see in them and what you can infer about trade from that. And so. Uh, those are some books that have taught me a lot, I guess, about property in general. Do you have any recommendations for works broadly that would complement this book especially well? That's interesting. So if anyone hasn't read Nozick's Anarchy, State, and Utopia, everyone should go and read that. It's such a beautiful, wonderful, Very fun. Fasc- fascinating book. Not easy, but uh, but fascinating and wonderful. I do recommend economic history. Actually, you know, a lot of people, they get into Hayek and, and then maybe they're interested in economics and they get a little bored if it's kind of charts and graph stuff, but but consider economic history. If you've never read an economic history, made made a huge, huge difference to how I see the world. So consider A Farewell to Alms. There's a guy named Angus Deaton at Princeton who wrote a book called uh, The Great Escape, where the, the escape is from poverty. And so just, just understanding how we got to this point uh, has made a huge difference. And I, I very, very strongly recommend those books. Awesome. I'll I'll include those as well as your book on the show notes. Um, Are you working on, I know you have a a more recent book than this. You want to say anything about that and or (laughs) any other future projects you're working on? I'll just say two things. One is off the beaten path. So I I wrote a book about the music of J.S. Bach uh, recently. So I I can't claim that there's any super deep connection. Although uh, if if you're a fan of Thoreau, uh, at his pond, you might actually see a certain connection to Bach uh, at his piano. At least if you read my book, you might uh, see that connection. So if you're a music fan, you might be interested. Uh, the things I've been working on lately, I've gotten very interested in the concept of ideology and uh, what it is and why it makes a difference. And so that's what I've been thinking about lately. And where can people find you if they want to keep up with your ongoing projects? Uh, I have a website. They can find some more material on the book. And uh, I'm not very active on Twitter, but if they Google around, they can find me there too. All right. I'll include your personal website as well as links to your works. My guest today has been Dan Moeller, and his book once again is Governing Least, A New England Libertarianism. Dan, thank you so much for joining me on Ideas Having Sex. Thanks, Chris. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening.